friends, it's now time to consider God's Word, and if you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1, it's the end of John's Gospel, or you can follow along on the screen whenever I read the text. You know, our moment right now with COVID-19 and also the racial tensions that are unavoidable in our country these days, it, uh, it makes us ask, and very appropriately, what is God up to? Why does God seem so far away? Suffering makes us ask this question. Doubt makes us ask this question. Who is God? What is he up to? Why does he seem so far away? And another way to ask this question is, how does God reveal himself to us? How does God reveal himself to us? And for John, what we're going to see in this passage, for John... It's very clear that Jesus reveals himself through meals, through meals. This morning, we're going to talk about food, that Jesus, meals are anything but mundane for Jesus, because when you read the Bible, you'll see that meals are transformative. Meals are transformative, and particularly when you read the Gospels, you see the life of Jesus, you see him deeply engaged in meals. When you see him miraculously turning water into wine at a rural wedding, when you see him feeding 5,000 people with just two fish, and then when you think of the parables, those famous stories that Jesus told, you're caught up in stories about food. Mustard seeds, fig trees, great banquets, and great feasts. And then ultimately, uh, you know, when John has these I am statements included in his gospel, these are statements where Jesus says, look, I'm going to tell you who I am with these special titles. Food is actually in his titles. I'm the living water. I'm bread of life. And then ultimately with the sacrament of the Lord, the Lord's Supper at his table, Jesus took bread and wine and said those special words to his people. Do this in remembrance of me. For for Jesus, meals and food, it's anything but mundane. And that's what we're going to see at the end of John's gospel here in John chapter 21. It involves Jesus who is risen. This is after the resurrection and before the ascension, before he leaves. He cooks his friends breakfast on the beach with a charcoal fire. And Eugene Peterson appropriately calls it the resurrection breakfast. The resurrection breakfast. And this this breakfast serves as a window into the ways in which Jesus will continue to reveal himself to his people after he ascends and sits at the right hand of his father. So with that in mind, let's, let's read this passage Together, this is God's words, uh, friend. He has spoken to us. He's not silent. He's spoken to us not to give us a theology exam to ace or book of rules to follow. He's spoken to you and to me because he loves us. And after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter Thomas called the twin Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. 
Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. They cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard it, heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came into the boat, dragging the net full of fish. They were not far from the land, about a hundred yards, yards off. Verse 9. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And all there, although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. It's the word of God for the people of God. Let's go to him and ask him that he might teach us. Lord, your word is living and active. You've spoken to us. Lord, thank you for revealing yourself. Lord, our minds are busy and our hearts are restless if we are honest. We have so many distractions out in the world, in our own hearts, in our own minds. Lord, I do ask that the words of my mouth and meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you. Our Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So the game plan this morning is this, two points. First, word. Second, meal. Word, then meal. Let's do the first one, word. So in his gospel, and you can apply this principle to any book of the Bible, repetition is important. Any writer, repetition, when they use uh, single words or phrases, and they do this uh, with repetition, they're trying to get a point across. And this is what John is trying to do. In verse 1, he uses the phrase, he or Jesus revealed himself. This is repeated twice in one verse. And for John, Jesus reveals himself through meals, through food. And again, th this is a resurrection breakfast. That's the, the central event of this passage. The action uh, happens at the meal with the fish and the charcoal grill. That's for sure. Um, but while the story ends with uh, breakfast is ready, breakfast is served, God's word is what gets the action started. After all, God's word is, is living and active. And we see God's word, Jesus' words in this story, doing three things. And the first thing is this. Through his words, Jesus is initiating. God's word initiates. Um, John tells us at the beginning of our passage that these disciples, he names them, they're going on a fishing trip. They're either going on a fishing trip because... This was a leisurely thing that they want to do. 
uh, or they're returning to like nine to five everyday life and, and frankly life before Jesus came on the scene. And why are they returning to, to fishing? Uh, because they thought Jesus was still in the grave. The Savior and friend who they've devoted their life to, as far as they know, uh, is still in the grave. And in verse 3, here's what we read with John. They went out and got in the boat, and that night they caught nothing. The fishing trip was not successful. It was not successful at all. The disciples at night were filled with failure, wasted time, and lack. But then our text tells us the sun came up the next day. And with the new morning, Jesus shows up. Jesus initiates a conversation with them. In verse 5, children, do you have any fish? Now again, he is engaging and initiating them, asking them a question. Do you have any fish? Uh, he's actually initiating them in the midst and on the heels of their failure and loss. Frederick Dale Bruner puts it this way, the initial condition for the Lord's self-revelation is quite often, as seen here, uh, not well-prepared disciples, what we would say successful disciples. It is actually failure. That's the condition for Jesus to reveal himself. For the disciples, the darkness of evening was marked by failure, and that's met with the light of Jesus in the morning with his initiating presence and new mercy. Jesus, friends, rather than standing far off, disengaged from the darkness and failure in this world and among his people, engages and pursues and initiate. Friends, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, child of God, every morning you wake up to new mercy in Jesus Christ. With, he is initiating you. He is engaging you and your heart, the mercy of Jesus. His grace has no limits. It's new every morning. The light, according to John's gospel in chapter one, shines in the darkness and the darkness will never overcome it. The darkness of our failure and our lack and our void. So God's word uh, it, it initiates. It also directs and guides. God's words, it, it directs and guides. Jesus, um, in verse 6, we read that he says this, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. In their failure and undeniable frustration, Jesus compassionately directs them. He guides them. He's their fishing guide, right? And isn't that exactly what God's word does? I recall those words from Psalm 119. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's word initiates, it also guides and directs the people of God. And lastly, we see that through his words, Jesus creates. God's word is creative. In verse 6, John tells us that after following Jesus' fishing directions, they caught so many fish, they weren't able to haul them in. And it was, it was 153 of them. I love the specificity with John there telling us exactly how overwhelmed they were with hundreds of fish. And the, 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 the nets almost broke. Their fishing equipment has no match. It's, not, it's, it, 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 it's just 
it's not cut out for how much uh, Jesus wants to lavish his grace upon this, uh, this fishing trip failure. Can you imagine the disciples at this point who have given their life, spent lots of time with Jesus, witnessing firsthand this miracle fishing trip? I mean, you think that they would be looking at, you know, Peter would be looking at Thomas seeing the nets almost break with how many fish they're catching because of his direction and creative um, insight. Throw it on the other side. You think they would be, th you know, Thomas, I've seen things like this before. Isn't this all too familiar? If I recall, this, this is familiar when, with one word, this man calmed a storm. Peter knew it was Jesus at this point. Only Jesus, only the Savior has the power to miraculously create like this, to, to miraculously act. Indeed, the same word that spoke creation into existence with one word speaks to this company of eclectic fishermen and out of the void and nothingness of their failure, we see new creation. God wants us to know that Jesus initiates, he guides and directs, he creates as the word made flesh. God has spoken to his people and he has spoken uh, to initiate us, to guide and direct us, but also to create out of nothing, out of failure. That's word. Let's go to meal. Jesus also reveals himself not just with his words to tells us who he is, what he's about, but also meals. This ordinary task of, of, of taking mundane stuff of creation, bread, soup, fish, and all gathering around a table with a company of friends is anything but mundane for Jesus. In the Christian life, if you want to know Jesus and what he's about, eggs and bacon in the morning might be a good place to start. In Luke's account of the disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, Jesus makes himself known to his disciples when they were walking on a road and he opened the scriptures to them, the text tells us. But then they fully recognize Jesus when they get to someone's house and they sit down at the table and it says, in the breaking of the bread, they recognized Jesus. Through the meal itself, Jesus makes himself known. And that's what we see in this story. It all starts when they smell the charcoal fire. Picture it, the disciples are jumping for joy at this point because of, of this miraculously, uh, miraculous, miraculous uh, fishing trip. And they see about 100 yards off and they smell the charcoal fire. Jesus is there cooking breakfast for his friends. Jesus waves them down, come and have breakfast. Their friend and savior is not dead. Anything but that he is risen. Breakfast is ready. Come and taste and see that he is good. And how can we not think of the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, when we look at this story? Similar to the Lord's supper he inst instituted before his crucifixion, Jesus is the host of this breakfast. 
Eugene Peterson notes that any meal, for any meal, the host always sets the terms and conditions of the meal. The host is in charge. He makes all the action happen. The disciples, then, you and I, are his welcomed guests. Any disciple of Jesus must come to terms with the fact that when we come to the Lord's table, he is the host. We come humbly receiving the divine hospitality of God. Jesus is the host of this meal on the beach, but he's a generous host. And that's important because not all hosts are generous. With Jesus, friends, uh, the disciples don't just get one helping of fish here. This is like the largest and most elaborate and abundant fish fry you can imagine. Remember, 153 fish, and there's only seven guys there. Friends, when you and I come to the Lord's table, we don't just receive one helping of God's grace. We receive and experience and get caught up in a feast of grace. If you've ever experienced a four-course meal, maybe uh, on a honeymoon with your spouse or celebrating an anniversary or a birthday or high school or graduate school graduation, four-course meals are elaborate and abundant. This is the kind of meals Jesus was concerned with and engaged in. Again, think of the wedding reception at Cana. They run out of wine and Jesus fills six 30-gallon water jars with wine. And then Jesus took fish and bread, noticing that people were hungry. And he didn't just invite five people to this, uh, this fish fry. He feeds 5,000 people and they were satisfied. It's safe to say that when Jesus is the host of a meal, there's enough for seconds and there's plenty for everybody. Grace upon grace. The mercy of Jesus Christ reflected at his table, which this meal I would argue points to, the breakfast that is. The grace at that table has no limits. Any hungry sinner, any thirsty beggar, regardless of their race, socioeconomic class, height, weight, is welcome and promised to find rest and forgiveness at the table. You know, hospitality and meals obviously go hand in hand. And part of the challenge of living in, uh, in a pandemic with social distancing is like we can't have people over in our home as much as usual. And we're used to doing that a time with college students and we just can't because of social distancing and COVID-19. But when you consider Jesus as he's the host uh, of his meals, hospitality and sacrifice uh, are, are central features. Hospitality and sacrifice are huge for Jesus. Think about it. When you um, host someone in your home, you long for them to feel welcome. And that's why you say things like, hey, make yourself at home. You know where the glasses are. You know where the mugs are. You know where the salt and pepper is. Make yourself at home. But in order to achieve and cultivate this hospitable, warm, and welcoming environment, sacrifice is involved and necessary. The host must sacrifice time, energy, resources to make it all work right. And so when you sit down at someone's table and you look at the mashed potatoes and broccoli, when you get a second serving 
of chili or cherry pie, you are receiving the benefits of the host's love and labor and sacrifice that went into it all. The chopping of the onions, the careful measuring of herbs, the, the turning on the crock pot before you went into the office in the morning. Uh, it was all done, why? For the joy and satisfaction of the guests. And friends, listen, is sacrifice not the central feature of the Lord's Supper, the meal that this resurrection breakfast points to. When Jesus took the bread and wine at the table with his friends, he told them the only way you can experiencing the welcoming love and forgiveness of God is because of the sacrificial death on the cross. When he uttered those wonderful words, it is finished. The only way that your soul, brothers and sisters, can be truly satisfied, where your hungers and thirsts can be satisfied, the only way to taste and to see that the Lord is good is because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He is the host. He has made it all possible. The transforming power of meals I have not seen any movie or read any book that, that profoundly captures the transforming power of meals more than this movie called Babette's Feast from 1987. Babette's Feast. And the movie takes place in the late 19th century in a tiny Danish village, a fishing village on the coast. In the village, it's isolated, it's, it's secluded, and a small church community lives there. And the parish minister, uh, along with his two daughters and along with an eclectic mix of characters, young and old, they're all there. And the community is strict. It's, it's pretty legalistic. And after the minister dies, his two daughters are now middle-aged and the entire community is bitter towards one another and plagued by grieving their beloved minister's passing. And they're sad. They're angry, they're joyless. And then out of the blue, a young French woman named Babette shows up at their door. Babette shows up after her husband and children were killed in the French Civil War requesting shelter from these two daughters. She needs safety. And she says, look, I'll, I'll work for you with no pay. I'll be your housekeeper and cook. And that's exactly what happens. The daughters welcome her in and she begins to work for them. And then something happens that changes Babette's life forever. She wins the French lottery. She wins a fortune. And the two daughters uh, and the two sisters obviously expect Babette to like take off, use the money to create a life for herself. But here's what happens. Babette uses the lottery money, money she won to cook a homemade French dinner for the entire village to celebrate the anniversary of the pastor's death. And Babette spends days traveling back to France to acquire all the ingredients for this elaborate feast. And much of the movie consists of Babette after getting all the ingredients from her homeland. She's in the kitchen preparing the meal, working tirelessly and with great care cooking this feast. But the real magic of the movie happens and takes place when the parishioners sit down, sit down at the table. They had no idea uh, what was about to happen, what they've gotten themselves into. 
And as they enjoy course after course, having their glasses refilled, this disgruntled, angry, and sad company of men and women become joyful. Crippling, foggy sadness is lifted from grieving daughters at the table. Those who sat down at the meal as enemies are reconciled to one another at the table. Downtrodden and pouty faces and facial expressions are transformed to laughter at the table. At the table, what we see is this strict hodgepodge company of men and women are changed right before our eyes. Around a table in a tiny village, all because of the sacrifice of a French chef named Babette, this wounded church is healed. Towards the end of the feast, a soldier, a general who is present at the meal, stands up to give a toast. It's the high point of the movie, and this is what he says. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and bliss shall kiss one another. Man, in his weakness and short-sightedness, believes he must make choices in this life. He trembles at the risks he takes. We do no fear. But no, our choice is of no importance. There comes a time when your eyes are opened and we come to realize that mercy is infinite. We need only await it with confidence and receive it with gratitude. Mercy imposes no conditions. For mercy and truth are met together and righteousness and bliss shall kiss one another. At the table of our Lord Jesus, we find an eclectic group of men and women, don't we? Young and old, rich and poor, black and white, Democrat and Republican, doubtful and joyful. Jesus is the host of this table. He is in charge. He has set the terms and conditions of what kind of meal it is and who is invited. And friends, the challenge for us as the church who have, who have experienced the welcoming grace and hospitality of Jesus Christ is to extend, extend that same hospitality to our neighbors, whoever they are, and to fight to make sure that every single one of our neighbors, regardless of race or socioeconomic class, is welcomed at the table and found um, that they actually have a seat at the table. Not just the Lord's table, but our kitchen tables as well. Because part of what it means for us, friends, is we pray the Lord's Prayer that he taught us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, how is it in heaven? Every tongue and tribe and nation will be, as John describes elsewhere in Revelation, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, around a table. And at that table, it will be as eclectic as it gets. And so part of us to pr is, part of the, the challenge for us is to make more and more our kitchen tables 
and the Lord's table more reflective of that, that table we're going to in the new heavens and new earth. That's the, challenging for, that's the challenge for us today, especially. Friends, we began this time looking at this resurrection breakfast with John 21, asking, what is he up to? Where's God? How does he reveal himself? How does he show himself to us? And we've seen a window into that. And I just want to, I want to urge you as we've looked at this breakfast on the beach with Jesus, look at him, look to him. The word made flesh crucified and risen and reigning king, fulfilling these wonderful words from Isaiah 55. And I'm going to close by reading them. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen, diligent to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Friends, look no further than Jesus Christ, living water and the bread of life. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you that you are not silent. You are not aloof. You're not disengaged. You have spoken. You've drawn near to us. Lord, be with us as we try to live out our faith, our faith in you to a watching world. Help us to reflect the welcoming love of our Savior and friend, Jesus Christ, who made us children when we were far off and rebellious. Lord, we need you, and we ask that you would help. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. Friends, it's now time to consider God's word. And if you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1, it's the end of John's gospel, or you can follow along.